Thanks, Ross. Uh, it was amazing to see Kings Park, wasn't it? I have not even thought about that place for ages. And to see an abandoned or totally empty stadium is quite strange. Hey, it's kind of cool in a, in a slightly sad way. Um, uh, I wish I'd had the chance to wander around on that hallowed turf with Ross. But as he was describing, as he was, as he was um, discussing, we're going to go to a story, an, an ancient story that actually is hugely relevant for our church today. We're starting a discussion about what church is really for and how much it's really worth to us. Um, and so we're going to go to Acts chapter 4 and starting at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, Peter and his friends are quoting Psalm 2, actually. So Peter's just come back from his ordeal with the high priest um, and the authorities. He's told them the story. They've now lifted their voices and they're starting to worship because Psalms, if you're not aware, um, the Psalter, as you can call them if you want to be fancy, uh, is basically the hymn book for the people of God, the, the ancient hymn book of songs that could be sung at different times. And so they've gone for Psalm number two, which is a really fascinating psalm. It's actually a pretty intimidating psalm as far as they go, um, because it starts with this discussion of the fact that the rulers of the earth are plotting against the Lord's anointed. And, um, and then God scoffs, he laughs at their plans, and it finishes with this, the, the wrath of God might come at any minute, but he's an amazing refuge for those who put their trust in him. So it's a pretty potent psalm. And so they remind each other of what the scripture says. They sing this psalm together and then they pray the following. Um, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're saying, Initially, Psalm 2 might not have made that much sense because who's the Lord's anointed? Now we know who the Lord's anointed was. It was Jesus. And we've seen, just like the psalm said, that both rulers of Israel and rulers who were Gentiles would gather together, would band together to try to oppose the Lord's anointed and their plans would come to naught. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, that is a cool prayer meeting. That might be the best prayer meeting that's ever been had. I'll continue the story in just a second, but I just want you to see what's gone on here. One man, one heroic man, Peter, filled with, the, with faith and with the Holy Spirit, performs a miraculous sign, healed someone who was born lame. Gets into trouble with the authorities. The authorities rake him over the coals, tell him to stop. He goes, well, I'm not going to obey you instead of God. If I have to choose, I'm going to obey God. They can't say much about it because the healed man is standing right there and everyone's going to uh, oppose them if they try to punish these guys for what was clearly a very popular act. And so they send them home with a flea in the ear. They meet with their community and now instead of, a couple of heroes, you have some church going on. And this is really important because as I mentioned, we're having a conversation about what church is really for and if it's something that we really still need uh, in the way that we used to need it. And what is going to be fascinating to me is to see what happens after this bit of church. But I just want to pause on it a little longer because I think we see in Acts chapter 4 a prototype for what the people of God, what believers, what the church should be doing whenever she gets together. You see initially some 
testimony being shared. They come back and they tell a story of what's gone on. Sharing testimonies of what God has done and what you're facing seems to me to be part of church. You then see some worship take place. They lift their voices. They sing as one a psalm out of the hymn book. They're not just worshiping. They are then praying for some stuff. They're praying, fascinatingly, not for the difficulties to end, but for boldness to rise. That's amazing to me. That something out of having sung these songs and reminded themselves of who God is, causes them to pray the right prayer in this moment, which wasn't, Lord, make the difficulty cease, but it was, Lord, give us boldness to continue. And part of what caused them, I think, to ask that was the fact that they reminded themselves and even mentioned it as they were praying about the sovereignty of God, that he is in charge, he's in control, no one can thwart his plans. Having done some some testimony, some worship, some prayer. You then see there's also the word of God is shared. So they're speaking scripture to one another. And amazingly, there's this intimacy with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit arrives, fills them, fuels them, directs them, commissions them for, for the mission. And what we know about the Holy Spirit and what we start to see more and more in the book of Acts as they continue to become a little more educated and expert in their experiences of the Holy Spirit is that when he comes, he always ends up giving gifts to his people. And so you see Holy Spirit ministry going on in this moment and every time they gather together where people express the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given them, whether it's preaching or teaching or prophecy or whatever the gift might be, mercy, hospitality, etc. All these amazing, powerful expressions of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like a pretty awesome prototype for church. Some worship, some prayer, some mission. This isn't just for us, it's for out there. Um, some sharing of the word, some ministry in the Holy Spirit. Now, if we're discussing what church is for, it would be worth our while to pay attention to what happens when a bit of church has been done. Okay, so one heroic guy does something cool, gets in trouble, goes and hangs out with his church and does some church. So let's pick up the story in the rest of chapter four. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace, that means favor, potent favor of God, was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and who... We've, we hear about him now doing something pretty awesome. And this is like step one of an amazing career that he goes on to have. Barnabas becomes one of the heroes, one of the key people in the story of what goes on, God goes on to do through the church. Just interesting that this is where he begins. This is the faithfulness that he begins with. He was a Levite and a native of, of Cyprus, and he sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter, one guy does something cool, heals one person, gets into trouble, goes and does some church, the prototype for what we believe should happen when the believers get together. And the result of that is not just a few impressive people, but a movement, a transformation of a whole city, a whole community on fire, a whole mobilized army doing amazing stuff. Great grace was on them all. In the next chapter, you'll hear that the people of Jerusalem were actually terrified of the church, that they were kind of interested in them. But there's this amazing line, they were like, too afraid to go near them, and yet they couldn't help it because these guys had the answers to the questions they were asking. They would bring their sick, and the sick would be healed. Amazing stuff. Because in response to resistance, they prayed for more boldness and more power, not more comfort and more ease. This is an amazing group of people. This isn't just a motley crew with one or two stars. This is a community of faith. 
It's actually worth saying, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, Christian, that's a title that hadn't been invented yet at this point. Later on, eventually people had to think of something to call people like you and I, if you are a Christ follower, and so they came up with that term. But that wasn't what was used. Um, more often, in the sort of halfway through the story to getting to the term Christian, they were called the way, which was also kind of a half-hearted attempt to name something that was difficult to name. Uh, I'm glad that didn't stick. <laughs> the way sounds a little bit network markety for me. Jesus said, I am the way, not am way. Anyway, never mind if you don't know what that's about. But it's, uh, it's interesting that what people used to call this lot before they had a title for them or a name or a neat brand or a marketing campaign, is they called them believers. Because that was the thing that marked them out. That was the variable that made them different. They believe something. And they believe it radically and it's changed their lives. Faith was the thing that set them apart. And we know that faith is the thing that pleases God, that faith is the most important thing that we can grow if we want to grow as Christians or member of the way or member of whatever other term you want to use. The most important variable, the only variable really, is faith, belief which accesses the grace of God. Now, I'm going into all this detail because what we start to see when a bit of church has happened, when a bit of believers have got together, is pretty radical stuff. It's really beautiful, actually. The first thing we see is unity, radical unity. So they had everything in common, it says. They were one in heart and soul. They were bound together both by affection and by common purpose and by a kind of shared set of values. And they valued that connection. Guys, this is so important because um, I know right now what distinguishes us from one another seems to be a little more interesting than what unites us. I know you're a special daffodil. I know you're unique. I know you have some things that are really just important for you and that's what makes you sort of set apart and, and, and special and, and one of a kind. That's fine. Uh, God made you that way and that's great. But when something offends me or when something grips me or when I want to fight for something or shout about something or stand on a soapbox and preach at people about something, if I'm to listen to the model of Acts chapter 4 and what the prototype for church looks like, I should be holding, as much as I'm desperate to express my uniqueness and, and make my own personal sort of distinct mark on the world, I have to hold just as valuably, in fact, maybe even with more care, a desire to protect the unity of the saints. I could quote you numerous scriptures where God says, that's really important to me. Where there's unity, I command a blessing. The unity of the saints, don't, don't be the one that causes division because then God is going to be on your case because he loves the unity of his church. And that's one of the most amazing things we see here. It's this incredible connection that they had with one another, that they had so much in common. I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't say or stand for. I just want to recommend to believers that what we have in common, what unites us, is so much more important than anything that divides us. You may have differing opinions on all sorts of things that might seem in this moment really important. But the thing that is most important of all, Jesus Christ, you have him in common. So let's work as gently and patiently and humbly as we can with one another to protect the unity of the saints. Because we see from the very beginning that's been a key part of church that transforms, church that's valuable, church that's worth fighting for. We don't just see unity. We then see pretty outrageous levels of generosity. People selling property that's been passed down through their families. People giving insane amounts of money to ensure that no one lacks among them. It's, it's actually quite intimidating to read, isn't it? It's, it can be quite hard to swallow this level of generosity because you think, well, I don't, really want to get there. You know, I don't want to go to a church that tells those kinds of stories too often because that just sounds like it's going to cost me too much. 
Hey, am I the only one that thinks that way? Those sorts of stories seem intimidating. But I think we have them the wrong way around. I think we look at these stories of generosity, and many of them are, are deliberately given airtime in the New Testament. And we see them as commands, as opposed to seeing them as consequences of something else much more interesting. Let me explain what I mean. Think for a moment. Just pause. This isn't some fable. This isn't some instructional text that's been passed down to you. This is the story of real people living real lives. And some of those real ordinary people took it upon themselves to sell their land and give the money to the other people in the church and the other people who had need in the area. What does it take for a normal person to do that? What would you have to feel? What would you have to have experienced in order for you to be able to do crazy acts of generosity like that? And don't forget, you need to be able to do them cheerfully and willingly, otherwise God's not impressed. The only time acts of generosity get recorded in Scripture are when they please the heart of God, which means that they work the way He wants them to work. And acts of generosity are always supposed to be joyful and cheerfully done, willing, not under any compulsion or coercion or guilt. What would need to have happened in you? What would have needed to have happened in me for me to be able to say, this asset that's been passed down through my family, I'm not going to sell it and give it to people who have need. I suspect I would need to have experienced such incredible provision from God. I'd need to have experienced such care and intimate love from Him. I would need to feel so secure, so confident about the future that an act like that could be something I could do cheerfully. Now, if generosity like that is a consequence of those kinds of experiences, if there is a way for people in the body of Christ to feel that confident in the care and protection and provision and, and promise of God in your life, if you can live with that level of freedom and the result of that is that you give crazy amounts away, then be properly selfish and choose that <laughs> instead of choosing to try to hang on to the thing you think you don't want to give away, but actually we're seeing these amazing stories of people who do give it away. This generosity is not a command. It's not an instruction. It's not a goal in itself. That generosity is a symptom. It's a byproduct. It's a consequence of something incredible that's happened in people. And I want that. I want to experience whatever they experienced that made that a logical next step. I think you want to experience that as well. And we see at the end of some church happening, this amazing unity that people are prepared to fight for, this amazing generosity that is a result of something amazing that must be going on inside there. We also see a few other things. We see a kind of outflow, like, like a contagion, that's a dangerous word to use at times like this, that spreads out from this community. So they're not just enjoying something wonderful and keeping it for themselves. We see a whole area being transformed. We see this amazing power and grace come upon them that's like noticeable. In their little homes, meeting in their fours, fives, tens, twenties, just doing church, a bit of prayer, a bit of worship, a bit of ministry with the Holy Spirit, sharing the word of God, encouraging one another, power. And grace comes upon them all and transforms the whole area. The story started with Peter, a few heroes, doing something impressive. You do some church together, and you end up with this explosion that changes the whole region. As I was just sharing in that little video, we're discussing in all sorts of areas of life um, how much things are worth to us, whether we really want to keep them or not. Uh, and there's some stuff that you might be evaluating now, which before you'd have assumed, I'm always going to need this. And now... As I watch my own decision-making at this point and as I listen to other people, it seems to me like what we're going after right now because we're feeling a little gun-shy is like, I just want things to be simple. I want there to be as little risk as possible. I want things to be as convenient and safe as possible. I want them to 
cost as little as they can and require as little of me as I can get away with giving. I don't know if that resonates, but that's, I think, how many of us are feeling. Let's just trim things back to basics. Let's, let's remove the risk and the complexity and keep things simple and as cheap and as risk-free as we can and have them demand as little of us as we can get away with. Now, that's a pretty worthwhile exercise to go on. I don't think it's a, it's a bad thing to do what we would call like a minimalist exercise of removing the fluff, removing the waste, stripping things back down to basics. But there is a point right, to doing that. And the point is to make more space in your life for the really good things that you really do want to give yourself to because it's really important that we say that there is something other than minimalism that can take things out of your life. There's something other than a kind of disciplined approach to removing waste and weeds from your life. There's a thing called erosion. Erosion also removes things from your life and takes things back down to simplicity, but it erodes the good things away. It's just time and use and fear and nervousness slowly starts to weed out and remove out and take out things that actually in time we'll realize we can't do without. It's just worth noticing that there's some stuff that I can have leave my life over this lockdown period that maybe right now I'm not missing. But law of unintended consequences, right? Like in a little while I'm suddenly going to go, oh, that thing was feeding me and I, I don't know where it's gone but there's, I have a problem. Because the truth is we choose something some things over their simplicity, um, often we choose the route that is not that convenient, that's not that simple. And we do it on purpose and for good reason because we understand that those things fill us. So if you buy anything artisanal, okay, if you go after sort of artisanal stuff, the reason you do, you're buying something that's harder to find, that's more expensive and more difficult to use, and you're choosing that inconvenience because you think it's going to cause you some joy. If you have like many people, taking upon yourself this process of brewing coffee on antiquated machinery. You're going like, yes, I can buy this instant, but there's, a, there's something better about going through the ritual and doing all this complicated stuff. If you have at any stage produced a child and brought a child into the world, right? there's a lot of joy in that. There's so much inconvenience in that I can't even begin to tell you. You make that choice even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's disruptive, even though it's going to require lots of you because you know it's going to cause you more joy. There may be some things in our lives right now that we're potentially going to allow it to be eroded because we're after simple and convenient and easy. And in time, we're going to realize that it was just because that thing was so inconvenient and so difficult and required so much of me that it caused me so much joy. You know, we have more choice than we've ever had before. And yet it is more difficult than it's ever been to have a truly unique experience or opinion. We have more efficiency than we've ever had before, and yet we're all busier than we've ever been. We have more convenience than we've ever had before, and yet we're more distracted than we've ever been. You know, you can download an app on your phone now that if you want to hit Facebook or Instagram or a social media thing to open up, it will delay that app opening up and ask you sort of a second time, are you sure you want to open this app? Deliberate inconvenience to help you not get distracted. In my life, I've made a few of those sort of deliberately inconvenient, slightly dwarf-seeming decisions, right? I write with a fountain pen, even though a Bic is more effective. I shave with an old brush that I have had for ages and a blade because I enjoy that experience more, even though it takes longer. I drive an old and impractical and almost impossible to park vehicle because that provides something that a more efficient one wouldn't. There are some choices you might think I sound dwarf, but there's some choices you've made. You occasionally, if you're a South African, will take 
wood and coal and build a fire in your garden and cook food on it, even though the oven and the stove work. And if you were to look hard enough in the back of a cupboard somewhere, there's probably a dusty, generic George Foreman fryer from some baby shower. But you choose not to use that stuff, even though it's more efficient, because there's something that a bride does for you that fuels you in a special way. In fact, thinking about Kings Park, we might even pack all that gear and take it off to a car park at Blue Lagoon or at Kings Park and do all that again with public toilets and music you can't choose. <laughs> it's like we're going to do stuff that is deliberately inconvenient sometimes because we know it fuels us. If you could ask yourself the question, what causes you joy and really get good answers to it, I suspect your answers aren't going to be things that are speedy and efficient and convenient that you can have at the drop of a hat and then dismiss without any risk. They're going to be complicated. They're going to require something of you. There's going to be risk and confusion involved. But we need those things to fuel us. Now, I think, I have become convinced recently that church is absolutely one of those things that right now might feel like a luxury. Right now, I get it, you're zoomed out. And at the moment, church might look like, oh, maybe that's just more than it's worth at the moment. I can consume some stuff online. I can, I can get by I don't think this is one of those things that we can allow to be eroded away. I think we're going to find that we have lost something we can't afford to be without if we're not careful. I have had this experience just over the last little while. Um, because you see, what churches do, better than many of the other things they do, people join churches to find spouses, and that sometimes works, and they join churches to find friends, and that sometimes works, and they join churches to have something to go and do on a Sunday morning, and that works. And there are all sorts of other reasons why you might join church. You might join church for good reasons. You want to have a kind of sense of connection to something bigger than yourself, all sorts of good things. But the thing that churches are best at doing, of all the things that they do, is growing faith. That's what they do. That's what they're designed to do. That's what we see in Acts 4, that it creates a community of faith. And there will be times when you need your faith to grow, when you're, you're at your end, and it's in moments like that that you need to be in a church community, a community of believers. This uh, happened for me just this weekend. So Saturday night, um, not only do I drive an impractical vehicle, I also live in an impractical place, like up on a hill above, you know, like far away inland. Uh, and so there's um, loads of mist. It's load shedding on the Saturday evening. Uh, I can barely see, I can't see the fence at the end of my garden, sort of 20 meters away from my door. Um, and because it had been load shedding, the power has come back on. So the flood sort of security lights are on but we didn't put any lights back on inside. Um, and Bern and I were just sitting chatting and quite enjoying the dark, um, you know, inconvenient but better. Uh, and so we were chatting and this mist was rolling past. And at some point, it was so strange. I mean, I, I must have been dreaming, but the mist in a part of my garden started to look like a person that was walking along in my garden, which was sort of strange. Um, and then this little cloud that looked so much like a person then turned left at the end of my garden and walked across the direction that the wind was blowing, which was very impressive uh, for a cloud. And so I leapt up going, That's, I think that was a person. And so we're looking out the window and freaking out a little bit. Um, and then the next thing, really impressively, a, a mountain bike from my shed started floating through the mist down towards my fence. Um, at which point, all that like, you know, it's just earthly goods, just protect yourself, your children need you more than they need a bike. Like, like forget it, man, that's nonsense. Grab the golf club, gown on, wailing like a banshee, running down the garden, like, give the mountain bike back, but like in a deep manly voice. And um, with Olympian like incredible athleticism. The guys were over the fence and onto the road, had already crashed the bike once and were heading down the road before I could get to the fence to see them and tell them the cops were coming. And um, then discovered that they'd been through a lot of our 
stuff, been through our cars, been through the garage, been through the shed, nicked some things. And you, I mean, I know we got away lightly, actually, that that, that kind of home invasion is a reality for many of you, and it can be a lot worse than that, but it still sucks. And, uh, and they'd made off with some keys to our house, which was really worrying for us. And so that evening was, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, cops there taking statements. The next morning, Sunday, we were going to be doing um, drive-in communion at Kloof, and it's been something I've really been looking forward to and being with my people and we had to stay home because the forensic guys were going to come and take fingerprints and we weren't allowed to touch the cars until then. And um, it was just a bleak moment. It was a very horrible experience, that feeling of more fear, I guess. You feel invaded and you feel isolated and you feel a little on your own. Kind of the opposite of faith. Do you know what happened during the rest of that day? It's first one couple, then another, then a whole family of eight different people kept coming to our house with food and just to hang out. And by the end of that day, we'd kind of had our best day in recent memory. Um, but there was a point when some friends of ours were sitting on a couch, and it's not that they were doing anything hugely spiritual or special, but I recognized that what they were in that moment, what they were doing is they were bringing like forcefully love and joy and faith into that place. And we needed it. We desperately needed it in that moment. Bern and I had just that little bit of faith to rub together. We weren't feeling particularly brave. And our community, our church, the believers, just descended upon us and just gave us the thing that church is always best at giving you. They gave us faith. They grew our faith. And faith's the thing that you get grace out of heaven with. Faith is the currency by which you access all this good stuff that God has for you. As you believe, so you get more of it. And my community just came and dumped it on us and drove it into the ground on our property and said, there will be joy here. There will be faith here. There will be love here. And there is now. And we didn't pull that off. Our church just came and put it there. And if receiving it's amazing, giving it is even more incredible. I've had the privilege of being part of the community that has cared for uh, just the, my dear friends in our church, the Blairs. And they, we trust our finally finished Sandra's chemo process. And without going into the details of that pretty hectic story, as that chemo f finished, um, Ross posted on Instagram. He said, he's, amongst other things, you know, he was very rightfully boasting about his amazing wife. And then he said, he's so grateful for extraordinary friends who have carried us through this time. Our OTC Kloof community has shown the love of Jesus to us in beautiful, tangible ways. And I know I got to be part of that. And that's one of the best things I've ever been able to do. The experience of adding faith to people of faith who in that moment desperately needed it. Because there is a moment when you're going to need a community of believers, to come and add to the faith that you have, to come and grow your faith. It's one thing to read a scripture to yourself. It's another thing to have your friends come to your house and live it out to you. And it'll give you a space to work out your faith. You know, there's, there's lots of demand and there's lots of reason. And I get it. There are loads of rational excuses that we might all have for saying, well, this is just too hard right now. I don't feel like going to someone else's house to worship. I've learned how to do it in my home. I don't feel like going and contributing somewhere else. I've learned how to consume just enough where I am. I've got things feeling safe and simple and not too costly and fairly convenient. Friends, this is not one of those things that's minimalism. This is one of those things that's erosion. This is something that will feed you, that will grow your faith, the most important thing you have. And what I discovered this last weekend and what the Blairs have discovered or what millions have discovered is that the more you invest in this community of faith, the more you get out of it. And amongst the many wonderful things you get from a church, you get faith, which is the thing you need. I need faith in this moment 
to access the grace of God more than I've ever needed it before. You need deep faith right now. And so the challenge for us, the call, is that despite all the good reasons not to, we have an opportunity to engage with the people of God, the believers, and to allow them into our lives and to get into their lives. If you're not in a group, to start a group or to join one. If you've not committed your life to Jesus, to not only trust him, but then if you would do us the great privilege, trust us to be your family of faith. If you are in some pocket or corner of our church, which is mostly about socializing or mostly about common interests or mostly about, goodness me, it's noisy here. Um, if you are in some pocket of our church and you are in a, in a kind of group of people that are mostly about common interests or mostly about socializing, or mostly about conspiracy theories, or mostly about your kids, or whatever else your community might be about, as good as some of that stuff might be. Make the part of our church that you're in about faith. Take this as a call to transform it into a community of faith that talks about the good, sovereign, powerful God who's at work in one another's lives. Because as the great poet Louis Armstrong said, oh, in the saints, go marching in. I want to be in that number, not on my own.